A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I would have been here sooner for our recording, um, but I, the car in front of me hit a bicyclist. Oh, my God. Yeah, which is an un, not an uncommon occurrence in the streets of Washington. It's a, I mean, it is something that you have to learn as a driver. Now that we have so many more bicyclists in D.C. than we used to, you do kind of have to retrain yourself. Like, look behind you before you open your car door, which is not that hard, but you, you, it's, driving is so habitual. We have to build new habits to live with bicycles, I Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the I'm Crazy, How Are You edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I'm feeling a little crazy today. How are you all feeling? How are you feeling? On the scale of one to Donald Trump, how crazy are you feeling? Boy, that's a hard gauge to get really up to Trump level. I'm not quite at that Olympic kind of uh, fighting weight yet. Maybe like a four. I see, because, you know, The Hill reported today that Donald Trump has described... um, uh, issues and policy as his strong suit. Um, and really? I thought that like was... Like as in mental issues and like real just, estate policy? You know, just the Hill t- tweeted, just in Donald Trump, uh, issues and policy are my strong suit. And I thought that was like me saying, vote for me because I'm an African-American lesbian. <laughs> 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 I, I would just like, you know, there are a lot of things about Donald Trump that we don't know yet. And oh, sure. He's got lots of surprises. His October surprise is going to be that he's a competent, rational individual who's just all this time has been hiding his secret that plan to That would be a America. hell of an October surprise. Ay, ay, ay. We're going to get to that. We're, we're going to get to a lot of things in the podcast this week. We have a special guest today. We do have a special guest. Our friend Jonathan Roush is back. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Shane. Thank you Hi, for everyone. joining us. Here with our friends Ben Wittes and Tamar Coffin a little bit. Hello, guys. Hi, Yo. Um, Jonathan has a fantastic cover story in The Atlantic uh, on stands now or on your iPad or on your computer. It's a cover story, but we were just talking about, like, what makes a cover story? It's literally on the cover of the magazine. It, it is on if, the cover. If you still know what a magazine is. Or a cover. <laughs> uh, but we're going to talk about that. Uh, so first up, the American political system has gone insane. Roush is going to tell us all about that and what it means for our national security. Also, State Department officials protest President Obama's decision not to bomb Syria. And the intelligence community lashes out at Israeli spy Jonathan Pollard. Um, so, John, tell us the, your piece begins with sort of this. The piece which is on newsstands. On actual stands of news. You can pick up and hold the magazine, and on the front page, that's the cover. That's right. it. There's, you can roll it up and swat things with it. There's there are, an image, a graphic, and, and Jonathan's name. There are these the things cover. called magazines that still exist <laughs> that have pages and stuff. So, now that we've completely humiliated you. Um, inside these paper pages. I, I cashed the check. So you cashed the check. That's all that really matters. Uh, but you start with this sort of, you know, the tongue-in-cheek idea of, you know, it's 2020 and Paul Ryan has resigned and, you know, we're looking to Duck Dynasty and celebrity appearances, reality show celebrities as being political leaders and dominating kind of the political landscape. And it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of, I think, opening what your central argument is uh, uh, that the American political system has basically gone nuts. So talk to us about the piece and, and then we want to talk to Just you about the national security. We, yeah, how batshit are we, John? Well, it's not that we're batshit. It's that Okay, here's one way to think about it. 
Politics is a team sport, and governing is even more of a team sport. You need to coordinate millions of voters with thousands of interests, with hundreds of politicians day in and day out, and we have systems to do that, and they're called parties and political machines and bosses and smoke-filled rooms, and we use money and we use bargaining and uh, control over the nomination process and all of that kind of thing traditionally to get politicians to play together. So what happens if politics is a team sport, but we're all playing it like third-grade soccer? You remember third-grade soccer. Some of you have had third-grade. Everybody wants to kick the ball. You just all mob the field, and everybody tries to kick the ball for their own glory. So that's a terrible way to play soccer. It's an even worse way to play politics. That's what we do now, because we decided over the past 40 or so years it would be a really good idea for, for what seemed like a good idea to, at the time to dismantle the things, the mechanisms, the devices that politicians and the political class use to get organized. Things like smoke-filled rooms and pork barrel spending, which buys votes and can some control over the nomination process. So that if Tammy takes a nasty hard vote on the debt limit or to keep the government open, I can protect her to some extent from a primary challenge. Uh, we decided all those things were bad. We cut out the middlemen, we cut out the intermediaries, we shut down the smoke-filled rooms, we got rid of the earmarks, it all looked like good government reform, and then we woke up one morning and realized there's no longer an establishment that can enforce any kinds of political norms or standards. And the system's wide open to insurgents who come in from outside, hijack the system. Not a darn thing anyone can do about it. That's a new reality in politics, and that's where we are right now. So, okay, you're saying that this is all the result of good government reforms. Well, not all the result. Okay, well-intentioned reforms designed to make government more transparent, more open, less influenced by money. So, in other words... The Bernie, the, the revolution that Bernie Sanders has been calling for already happened, and the result is Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's how this whole thing began. In 1968, the Dems had a bad convention. So George McGovern headed a panel that said, you know, let's give regular people a whole lot more say over the nomination process, and lo and behold, he'd written rules that got himself the nomination and lost spectacularly. So from the beginning, this process has been, to some extent, self-serving. Uh, but yeah, it went too far. It was well-intentioned. I agreed with a lot of it at the time. The thing about the old, you know, machines and political professionals and insiders, all that stuff, is it worked so well for so long that we forgot why we ever had it. We thought we didn't need it anymore. So we got rid of it. Like so training wheels on a bicycle. Yeah. Hmm. So here's Except my... you don't need training wheels on a bicycle once you once you learn to ride. This stuff, it turns out, you did need. There was a reason it was there. So here's my question. What is the national security implications of the system that we have now uh, set up and that you have uh, described in this article, uh, in which, uh, what, like, what's the relationship between these political establishment institutions that enforce norms and what we think of as, you know, the bipartisan foreign policy consensus, the, um, you know, institutions like NATO that we're, you know, committed to, and a sort of sense that there's, you know, a post, a post-war set of norms in foreign and defense policy that are kind of off the political table to revisit 
no matter how angry Glenn Greenwald gets about them. So a few things to think about there. One is that chaos syndrome, as I call all of this stuff, it's like chronic fatigue syndrome. It makes everything else you need to do harder because it's so much harder to organize any kind of action on Capitol Hill or, for that matter, anywhere in politics. So you've got this kind of global effect that just the, the fact that something's really important and really needs to get done doesn't really matter that much anymore if you can't organize the votes to make it happen. Like the Zika virus funding. Everyone agreed it was important, but nobody could get it done. Yeah, or for that matter, like a debt limit bill, keeping the government open, passing appropriations, passing a Surface Transportation Act, passing a farm bill. Oh, that's okay. We the don't stuff want the that used to, to be routine. Anyway. So this is a problem of collective organization, and that affects national security as well as everything else. More specifically, you guys know more about this than I do, but national security is an area that has, I think, traditionally required a lot of specialized knowledge and expertise. Um, it is not something that we have historically left to plebiscites and election. I mean, you know, it's different from Medicare or Social Security. Um, it's really something a specialist class focuses on very intently. It comes out of certain committees in Congress that need to be able to do their job. Well, a lot of that work needs to happen in an environment where people can meet in sessions behind closed doors, have candid conversations, put bills together, find the coalitions they need to get them done, and move them through, right? Because there's not going to be political support from the outside for a lot of this stuff. That's the part of the process, the sausage-making part, that is particularly crumbling. So I think that makes it harder to do kind of expert-driven legislation in many cases. Well, and, and that might be exacerbated by the broader devaluation of expertise that is evident in our media discourse, in our broader public discourse, and that is, you know, that we've discussed here before. But it, it sounds to me, Jonathan, like really what you're saying is that direct democracy is bad and that institutions that mediate between the vast unwashed and policymaking are good. And I might, you know, I can evaluate your argument separately, but one of the challenges that the United States has had in foreign policy in recent years has been that our own, the example of our politics is now tarnished because we can't pass appropriations, because we almost defaulted on our debt. Um, and we're dealing with other countries in the world that are putting forward alternative models, non-democratic models. So, but if what you're saying is that in order to be, not just to survive, but to be functional, our democracy has to be less democratic, what does that do to our ability to kind of promote that democratic example? Well, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, but I prefer to put this in a positive way. I don't think about this as less democratic because there's, it turns out that the system we've devolved to now is not more democratic. It's more chaotic. Chaos is not the same thing as democracy. If you look at the people who selected Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee, they're not a majority of the country. They're not a majority of the electorate. They're not even a majority of the Republican party. What they were is a mere plurality of the fraction of Republicans who put themselves forward to vote in 12 primaries. They were not representative of really anybody but themselves. What we've really done by getting rid of intermediaries is empower much smaller groups of 
extremists in many cases and protesters and single interests, special interests, who have exceptional interests and ability to focus in these processes. So this is why I think Madison got it right. It's a mixed system. It involves elections, but it also involves representation. It involves people thinking about the good of the system as a whole, thinking about two years, three years from now, what happens if we don't pass a debt limit bill. You want a mixed system, and I think at America at its best, I think that's what we're modeling for the world. So okay, okay, but, but let me let me ask you another sort of security component question to this. One of the things that's uh, interesting about the Trump-Sanders model of chaos is that they both represent, among other things, in Sanders' case, quite overtly, and. Uh, Trump's case, depending on which side of his mouth he's talking out of at any given time. But they, they both represent pretty substantially, you know, diver, you know, greater divergence from the mean in, uh, in, in at their attitudes toward foreign policy and, and intervention overseas and, uh, you know, surveillance and that sort of stuff. And so my question is, um, is there something inherent about the process that you're describing that leads to greater radicalism or greater divergence from the mean in, in, um, you know, in candidates, including successful candidates? Or is that, or is it just like there's more, uh, there's more options because you don't have you know, the parties enforcing strong norms I don't know the answer to that. Another way to ask that might be, is this just more random noise of all kinds in the system, or is this a systemic bias in favor of... I I don't think I know the answer to that. Um, And I think it differs depending on which kind of chaos candidate you're talking about. Um, But I do think it means that it is harder to think about longer-term, more nuanced issues. So my guess is that it's going to tend to drive the conversation toward populists and demagogues, which is what we're seeing. Climate change, we are So does chaos chaos politics and chaos campaigning becomes chaos governance? Right. These are two sides of the same thing. The way politicians get things done is by creating coalitions and networks in campaigns. Like, that's why Hillary Clinton, as of March, had raised $26 million to support other Democrats and state parties. And Donald Trump had raised $6. And Bernie Sanders had raised essentially zero, actually a 1000 the minimum to open a bank account. Um, Because Bernie Sanders' political model is, I don't owe anything to anyone, which means once he's elected, he can't govern. He has no networks. He has no friends. No one depends on him. So... Chaos in campaigns bleeds directly over chaos in government, and the opposite also happens because then people look at chaos in government and they say, okay, then I'm just going to vote for some completely out-of-the-box jerk who's going to shake things up. Mr. Duck Dynasty. Yeah, we've got to reverse this cycle. Jonathan, I'm not sure I feel any more sane after talking to you, but I feel more rational. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel more secure? Sure. I always feel safer when you're around. Um, I know you got to go, but thanks for joining us on the show and talking about your great piece in the Atlantic. Okay, so moving on to our next story. Um, The Wall Street Journal actually broke this, I think, fascinating story about uh, State Department personnel. Was it 51? 51. State Department personnel using something called the Descent Channel, which 
tomorrow you're going to explain to us what that is. Actually, it's part of Foreign Policy Magazine. Is it really? <laughs> no. right. It's a they blog have the on Democracy exactly. Channel and the Dissent right. Channel. Shadow yeah. Government. Nice, nice, nice. It's good. Um, to take issue with President Obama's decision um, not to, well, I mean, I don't know if it's so much taking issue with the decision not to bomb Syria, but saying that there should be military intervention in Syria, and essentially this is what is going to bring the conflict there um, to a close. It, it's news anytime this gets used. So I mean, tell us just a little bit about what this thing is and then explain the significance of Sure. So, um, look, like any large government bureaucracy, um, the State Department, you know, prizes consensus, it cultivates agreement, and it tends to squelch um, dissenting opinions or, or just different, you know, bring, it try, works to harmonize different views and bring one unified view to the secretary. That's what most federal agencies do most of the time. What's unique in the State Department is that there is this institution called the Dissent Channel, whereby um, foreign service officers who feel very strongly that a particular policy, which is the the policy approach embraced by the building is wrong, have a mechanism to bring their views directly to the secretary and his immediate staff. And this is a, a an institution that was created in the 70s, um, partly as a result of disagreements over Vietnam. Um, and it's basically a way to, first of all, ensure that the secretary gets unvarnished advice from his foreign policy experts, uh, despite the consensus creation mechanism of a bureaucracy, but also to ensure that talented foreign service officers have an opportunity to express their concerns about a policy rather than just resigning and leaving public service and, and uh, leaving us without the benefits of their expertise. So, so they could do this without being retired against too, right? Right. <clears throat> and it's, okay. it is, um, it's a protected channel. So basically it's usually a memo, which is usually classified. It goes directly to the policy planning staff who work right under the secretary. Uh, and there are some very strict regulations about how it has to be handled. That memo gets given to the secretary, the deputy secretaries, and a few other people right away. It's, it has to be acknowledged that it was received within, I think, 48 hours. Wow. And the secretary has to respond. Um, so wow. now the secretary, Secretary Kerry and his team have to come up with some kind of formal response to this dissent memo. Now, what's unusual about this instance is the number of Foreign Service officers who signed on to this 51, I think, is unprecedented in the history of the dissent channel. I mean, it gets used... It's usually like a few people. Usually it's only one. And it gets used three or four times a year, I would say. I mean, it's it's rare, but not crazy rare, but it's usually a lone voice in the wilderness. I heard about it during Iraq. There was a foreign service officer that did it. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the number of dissenters here is unusual. And really, the core message of the memo is we've all been trying to implement your policy on Syria for five years, and we believe strongly that the policy you have is destined to fail. That's the real argument of the memo. And and the, the, there's a draft of the memo that the New York Times has published. We don't have the final because it's classified. Um, but the argument they're making is that the United States is attempting to negotiate a diplomatic settlement to end the war without any effective leverage over its opponents, um, over Bashar Assad or over the Iranians or Russians who have intervened on his behalf. 
And without uh, combining military and diplomatic mechanisms, tools, you're not going to have a strategy that works. In other words, these dissenters are calling for coercive diplomacy, which is not, which is a time-honored tool in the U.S. foreign policy toolbox, but has not been employed here. The Obama administration has worked very assiduously to separate its diplomatic efforts to end the war from its military actions in Syria, which it which it says are strictly designed to oppose ISIS and not to affect the outcome of the civil war, not to oust Bashar al-Assad. And these diplomats are saying, look, that just doesn't work. Now, Frankly, I don't think that argument is novel. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. In fact, I think most of America's allies and partners in the region would agree with these 51 dissenters that it, it's illogical and, and unworkable to keep the military and diplomatic strategies in Syria separate, to keep the ISIS strategy and the Assad strategy distinct. Um, and so I don't think these guys are reflecting a, a, a view out of left field. Um, they're reflecting a view with a lot of logic and a view that the administration has consistently rejected. So politically, the significance of this is, uh, is really just in the fact that it became public and that there is a widespread, 51 people, public challenge from within the administration to the logic of its own policy. But Tamara, isn't the, if you have 51 people signing it, it's going to become public just because the rules of, the, the rules of leaks. Because 51 people can't be quiet? Well, <laughs> because the rules, Somebody well, will share the draft. Because, yeah, 51 people who are dissenting from a policy, um, and one of the reasons that the 47th, 48th, and 49th people signed on is that they knew it would become public, and you don't want to be necessarily, your calculation as to whether you'll sign such a thing if it's going to become public, and if it's not going to become public may be very different, right? Well, that's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you can say if you're the 47th person to sign something, you feel more comfortable signing, but if you feel like it's almost certainly going to become public, then it's a greater risk to your career. And even though formally people are protected from retaliation when they use the dissent channel, in practice there have definitely be ca been cases where people have been reassigned <laughs> and things like that that suggest that, you know, or at least their future career doesn't necessarily go as they might expect. So there is a real uh, professional risk for these individuals. But Ben, I have to say, when we look at the way this has played out, a couple of things really have struck me hard. Number one is Secretary Kerry, even though he was abroad at the time the dissent channel memo came through, he appeared to know about it right away, right away. He got asked by the press about it almost instantly after the Wall Street Journal and New York Times published their stories. And he said, yep, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to meet with these guys when I get back. And I have a lot of respect for the process. Very positive words for 51 of his staff who were challenging his policy uh, and ended up on the front page of the newspaper. And last night, uh, after Secretary Kerry apparently met with just eight of these dissenters, almost immediately a story ended up in the New York Times by David Sanger with a very full account of the meeting. Mm. Wonder now, who the source for that is. Very good notes. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this leads me to wonder, where did these leaks come from? Ben, I don't think it was from one of the 51. 
I think this is Secretary Kerry and his team, who we know are sympathetic to this argument and yeah. have been pushing the White House to give them more to work with, give them more leverage in the diplomatic talks, and this memo just bolsters their argument. And isn't the person the person who's sitting there praising this and saying yes and who has political considerations in play right now? Secretary, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who is also clearly, you know... On the record in her book as having taken a different view. So what does this mean for, and again, our mandatory disclosure, you're advising foreign policy for Secretary Clinton's campaign, but um, what does that mean practically then for her? Does this, because I think, I mean, a lot of people, including me, assume that she's going to come in and change the Syria policy. Um, Does this give, like, wind to her sails to do that? I mean, should we not assume she's going to change it? Well, look, I think one of the things that... um, that the administration, one of the points that the administration has made is that the options today are narrower than they were mm. um, at earlier phases of the war. And that's certainly true. So I don't think um, that there's sort of some automatic alternative pathway that any new administration could turn to. I th- And I think we've also seen dramatic changes on the battlefield since the Russians got into the war uh, nine months ago, and yeah. we don't know what's going to happen nine months from now. So the first thing is that it's a very dynamic conflict, and and you got to make your policy based on the situation at the time. Um, but the second thing, and here I think is the real political significance of the dissent channel. These are the experts, right? These yeah. are the foreign policy professionals who have sworn oaths, uh, and they're coming out and saying, this policy isn't working, and there is an alternative that we could try, and here's what it looks like. So you can agree or disagree with their specific alternative proposal, but it's very hard to dismiss their analytical criticism that the administration's approach in Syria will not succeed and something else has to be done. I think that's the challenge for whoever comes in office in January. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on now to Jonathan Pollard. You all remember Jonathan Pollard. Mm, who could forget? Who could, indeed, who could forget? Uh, who should forget? I'll tell you, who hasn't forgotten? The, the, the U.S. intelligence The tawdry case of Jonathan yeah, Pollard. exactly. So Jonathan Pollard, for those who need a quick refresh, uh, uh, 30 years ago, 31 years ago actually, was a Navy intelligence analyst who was uh, tried and convicted for spying for Israel. Uh, at the time, it was... Uh, deemed to be the largest, uh, in terms of amount of information, uh, leaked to a foreign government, uh, in the history of, of espionage in history. So probably only Edward Snowden really, uh, trumps it. Anyway, Pollard spends 30 years in prison. He is now out on, uh, parole. And as part of his probation, uh, where he lives in New York, uh, he has to consent to his computer being monitored and his online activities being tracked and wearing a GPS tracking device. Um, that follows his movements. And he has appealed to the U.S. Uh, Parole Commission saying this is onerous and it's a violation of my constitutional rights. It's keeping me from getting a job. It's keeping me from doing the things I need to do at home on my computer. Uh, and the intelligence community in a, um, a uh, filing to the commission last Friday basically said, oh, hell no, we are not taking this GPS tracker off you and not monitoring your your computer files. And what I thought was so striking about this is that there was a series of declarations that they made, one of which was that not only is the information that Pollard leaked um, still classified at the secret and top secret level, but actually, if exposed, would reveal information about sources and methods currently used 
in the intelligence community. So essentially, wow! Saying, you John, mean we're using thirty-year-old sources? Well, and this, this was this was sort of my. You I'm know, outraged. <laughs> this was my thing, but so it turns out I did some reporting on this. Um, one way that I think <clears throat> incredibly he might in fact jeopardize current sources and methods is if he knows the names of people who 30 years ago we were trying to recruit in Israel or Middle Eastern countries, if he knows certain trade craft that we use in those countries to try and find people. Um, I don't know how much he knows about signals intelligence 30 years ago that would still be revealing. But um, I just thought this was remarkable that the intelligence community is, I don't care if he's out of prison, you're on parole, we're going to make it as absolutely restrictive of you as possible. You yeah. are still Do you think it's enemy. just punitive, or do you think there really I is a substantive? I think it's both. And I mean, a couple of people I talked to on this had that view. One said, you know, I can imagine how these things could uh, divulge sources and methods. And he said, also, it's very clear that in his words, they want to fuck with him. Right. So, look. Uh, there is, uh, there's two Jonathan Pollard cases, right? There's the Jonathan Pollard case as discussed it by the American Jewish community, which is a case about, you know, a nice Jewish boy who maybe had a bit of a coke addiction and... They called uh, him the candy man. Yeah, and he, uh, he had, a, he had, he had some problems, but he spied for an ally and it was, you know, it wasn't really that harmful. And he said he was only giving them information that they that we were withholding right. from them, what, that we were obliged to give them right. for their defense. Because what would be imp- what could be harmful about <clears throat> giving Israel a little bit of information? And that that in that version of the story is kind of gospel in the U.S. in, in the U.S. Uh, community, uh, Jewish community, and in Israel. And there is a completely different Jonathan Pollard spy case story which is the version in the U.S. Intelligence Committee community in which this was one of the most damaging spy cases ever in the history of the United States. Um, and there has always been concern that the Israelis turned around and passed on some of the information to the Soviets. Um, there has been a lot of concern about the type of information that Pollard provided, which was A, profligate in, in size and scope, and B, had to do with, you know, submarine navigation and, and, you know, stuff that was, you know, really, really sensitive. Uh, some of those, you know, boats are not out of commission at this point. He also leaked um, a manual about how we intercepted Soviet satellite communications. Right. I mean, this was, this was serious stuff. And uh, back when Bill Clinton was thinking of, uh, you know, was trying to uh, iron down an agreement between the Israelis and Palestinians, the idea of freeing Pollard by way of, um, you know, sweetening the deal for the Israelis came up and was floated. And uh, and the intelligence community went into what I think is best described as full-fledged revolt. There was a long set of d- disclosures made to Cy Hirsch in the New Yorker about the scope of the damage that Pollard did as, as part of that kind of campaign against it. Uh, and I think this is part of that pattern. You know, it's a, it's a group of people who, um, who A, really feel that the damage was, you know, magnificently bad and B, that Pollard has been whitewashed by, you know, pro-Israel American Jews uh, and by successive Israeli governments as much less damaging than he really was. And I, I don't, you know, 
But neither of those points go to the question of whether he now could reveal sources and methods. In other words, the question at the heart of this brief. Yeah, which is, I mean, and one and to that point, I mean, and if you, when you read these uh, various declarations that officials have made, and Jim Clapper made one a few months ago as well, it's clear that the intelligence community believes that left to his own devices, he would spy again. Uh, that he would divulge more information, and potentially that just based on what he knows in his head, if he started talking about things, um, in, in whatever harmful. form, that that could be harmful. And they also point out that he, that he, he, uh, resists this characterization, but that he gave interviews from prison after he was arrested with Wolf Blitzer at the time, who was working for the Jerusalem Post, I think. Uh, that he wrote up to, I think, 13 or 14 letters from prison that they intercepted where he was, they accuse him again of, uh, of potentially really, of releasing this information. So you have So he's somebody, just unrepentant. He's a, exactly. He's unrepentant and habitual. And, and they, I think, are afraid that he will go back to Israel, uh, and start mouthing off and potentially, uh, divulge even more information than he did at the time. I mean, there is no doubt. Or, or additional information, right. I should say. So, first of all, I mean, I, I, th- I think if you believe the intelligence community's version of this, which is that he had access to, he disclosed incredibly sensitive, very rare stuff, uh, some of that stuff may still be live, you know, and, or at least they or may... Or it might still be classified even if it's not live anymore. Right. It's definitely still classified. They've said that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I've never known quite how to evaluate it, honestly, but I do think you're, you're running into the basic difference in narrative between the, uh, how did a nice, nice Jewish boy like you end up, you know, 30 years in, in with federal 30, prison. more than that, yeah. he got a life sentence. This was 30 years. He ended up serving only 30 years, but he got a life sentence. Um, you know, how did you end up with, with that horrible, uh, you know, sentence? And this, this is a really, really serious espionage case version, which is what the intelligence community has said back from the mm-hmm. time of, of when Cap Weinberger was Secretary of Defense, his affidavit in Pollard's original sentencing hearing was, you know, draconian and, and extreme in its assessment of the damage. Well, points for consistency in the IC, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I do just, I have to say I love stories like this in part because, I mean, it's just like, the old spies never forget. I mean, these yeah. grievances are so deep, and it's it's always like a little like transporting back in time when you bring up Jonathan Pollard. Yep. But boy, did they ever try to make it uh, timeless with these yep. declarations. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Who would like to share first? Uh, well, I have an object lesson. It is um, it is an image taken from a slide. Uh, and this is just uh, the results of one question from a poll that my colleague Shibli Telhami released last week. Uh, he polled uh, Americans, Republicans, Democrats, young, old, etc., on their attitudes toward uh, the war in Syria and Syrian refugees and the whole question of um, where refugees fit in this political moment in the United States. And, you know, we've seen a lot of kind of hot air around this issue by political candidates, by governors, by members of Congress, um, questioning the, whether the United States can safely admit any Syrian refugees. 
uh, and whether the vetting process, which is the most uh, extraordinary vetting process we provide for any visa category that we offer, uh, but uh, whether that's good enough to keep uh, Americans safe. And so President Obama agreed to uh, accept 10,000 Syrian refugees for resettlement. So far, I think only a couple thousand have actually been admitted to the United States. So one of the questions that Shibley asked in this poll is just an open-ended question. Hey, John Q. Public, how many refugees should the United States resettle in 2017? Just ballpark. Ballpark. Any number you want. Any number you want. And what's so interesting is that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the average is much, much higher than the number that we've agreed to resettle. The average for Republicans, 35,600. The average for Democrats, 64,400. Well, which is remarkably close, by the way, to the total refugee admissions it, that the United States does on an annual basis. Right. It's so, not Syria-specific, but I think we're admitting about 65,000 refugees this huh. year. Right. So, you know, Americans are basically, and there are a lot of other results from this poll, which you can find on the Brookings website. If you just go to, to the website and search uh, refugee poll, it'll pop up. But... Um, to me, what's really interesting is that this is one where you get the wisdom of crowds. The American people understand that, you know, we are uh, part of our role in the world is to provide safe haven for people who need it. And they're comfortable letting in about the number of people we let in and maybe even more. Uh, and uh, and so I thought that was a really interesting and maybe optimistic corrective to some of the crap that's been in our public discourse about refugees. A little less crazy. A little less crazy. for So for our How Crazy Are You edition, this is my object lesson. And Ben, your object I'm enjoying right now. Well, so Shane and I, is our want when we record Rational Security, are is drinking glasses of scotch. It always makes the conversation just flow. A little bit better, yeah. Um, so a few weeks ago, a gentleman named Ryan Evans uh, came to... The famed Ryan the Evans. Ryan Evans uh, showed up in my office. Uh, and Ryan is the editor of uh, the War on the Rocks site. Um, and he's, essential reading for yeah, national security. Yes, mm -hmm. terrific site. And he came to just chat about sort of what what uh, what sort of work lawfare and war on the rocks might do together. And we swapped some ideas. And being a really good businessman, which he is, he. See, I'm not. So, like, I didn't have like a you whole. You don't lot. have lawfare. I, you, don't I go, you don't have swag. I didn't have a whole lot of lawfare swag to give him, but he came with like a whole lot of War on the Rocks swag, including two War on the Rocks scotch glasses. And these are nice glasses. They're nice glasses. So and these, have you can have your scotch on and the drink rocks it too. Yeah. in the War on the Rocks They have heft. They're, they're nice and wide. You've got this fun little divot in the bottom. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a nice, it's a nice thing. And so I big shout out here to Ryan Evans to the War on the Rocks site because... Rational security is a scotch-consuming uh, culture, and we need... Two-thirds two of rational security is a scotch-consuming culture. <laughs> Cheers, Ryan. Yeah. So here's to you, Ryan, and uh, uh, everybody, particularly this week, should read War on the Rocks. Definitely. <laughs>
while drinking scotch. <laughs> Everything uh, goes down easier. It sure does. It sure does. Uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security, of course, is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And when you download the podcast from your favorite uh, site, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Hey, one point on that. One point on that? On that. Uh, we are increasing the number of iTunes uh, listeners who have uh, rated or reviewed the show. Oh, Thank you. Great. Thank you to everyone who has done so. We, we're getting about a 1,000 uh, listeners a week. We have 22 or 23 people who have rated or reviewed the show. That's shows, great. Which means we have 978 <laughs> p- people who have not. If you're one of those 900... 900... 78. 78. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's subtraction. <laughs> <laughs> if you're one of those 978 who listens to the show but has not bothered to rate us or review us on iTunes or Stitcher, come on, take a moment. If we could get 978. Drink a scotch. Drink and a then scotch, review us. And then it. review yes. us. Yes. And if we could do kindly, that, kindly. We would, uh, we would get a lot more people listening to, to the show. Yeah, that's great. So you 978 people, drink up, start reviewing. Uh, the podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by the Dissenting Divas. Do <laughs> you think they were all divas? No. No? I think they are honorable folk. Well, they deserve both. Maybe oh, divas should, are very honorable. Maybe we should start a lawfare column called the Dissent Channel. Uh, can, we call it, can we call it the Divas? <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. Our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, a diva in her own right. Yeah, she's a bit of a diva. She is, although it doesn't descend very much. She's a deserving diva. A deserving diva. Thank you, Sophia. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes and our good friend and special guest Jonathan Rausch, I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.